people are not comfortable sitting with nuance and ambiguity. They want the answer immediately. They want the answer to be something that's sensational and appealing, emotional. Um, because people are just now used to, um, you know, having this dopamine release um, constantly, and if they don't have it, they, they feel, you know, they're they're in, they're in distress. Welcome back to the Empire's New Clothes, the show where we discuss the forces that make and break empires. I'm your host, Brad MacArthur. Today we're speaking with Anna Lemke. She's a psychiatrist and a professor of psychiatry at Stanford, and also the medical director of addiction medicine at Stanford, among many other positions. She's written a few books and spent a lot of time thinking about the dopamine and addiction cycle. And today we reach out to her to figure out First off, what's going on in our brain when these processes take place? And also, how might they apply to our politics and our division in our nation? I hope you enjoy. Anna, thanks for joining today. Really looking forward to speaking with you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, looking forward to it. So you are a psychiatrist. You uh, work at Stanford at the Medical University, I believe. Yes, Stanford School of Medicine. That's right. All right. And so you spent a lot of your time looking at dopamine. What is, how does it impact us as humans? And then also our relationship between, what would you say, the, the monkey brain inside of us with all this wiring and then our, our highly stimulative world we live in today. Um, so it's going to be fun to kind of piece all these things together, but perhaps help us build a foundation. What is dopamine? How does it impact us? What are some of these cycles that play out? Yeah, okay, good place to start. So dopamine is a chemical that we make in the brain. It's essential for the experience of reward, pleasure, and motivation. It's also intimately involved in movement. For example, Parkinson's disease Hmm. is a depletion of dopamine in a part of the brain. It's caused by a depletion of dopamine in the part of the brain called the substantia nigra. And it really makes sense that that dopamine would be involved in movement and in reward because typically we need to approach the thing that we want in order to get the reward that we desire. Yeah. Um, and even very primitive, like, uh, you know, nematodes, worms, will uh, secrete dopamine when they sense a food source in their environment, which I just think is really kind of cool. Hmm. Um, so anyway. So it's, in our- it's an ancient process, really. It's not just for primates. That's right. Very, very ancient. This process of approaching approaching pleasure and avoiding pain is really hardwired across organisms over millions of years of evolution. And a part of our brain called the reward pathway is highly conserved over millions of years of of evolution. That means it hasn't changed very much, um, even Mm -hmm. though other parts of our brain um, have changed. And our reward pathway is really identical to the reward pathways of other species. Hmm. So getting back to dopamine. So what does it do? So when, when we experience something pleasurable or rewarding or reinforcing, what happens is that uh, there are these specialized neurons that release the chemical dopamine uh, in a, a special part of our brain called the reward pathway. And um, dopamine functions as a neurotransmitter. So what is a neurotransmitter? A neurotransmitter are the chemicals that bridge the gap between neurons. So neurons are the workhorse Mm. cell of the brain. They're these long spindly cells. And 
They, they allow for the electrical circuits that create our thoughts, emotions, feelings, mm-hmm. you name it. But there's a little gap between neurons, and that gap is called the synapse. Um, and it allows for fine-tuned control of these electrical circuits. And neurotransmitters um, are the chemicals that are released from the presynaptic neuron, travel across that space called the synapse, and then bind to receptors on the postsynaptic neuron and allow fine-tuned control of that signal. And dopamine is one of those. So when we do something that's pleasurable or reinforcing, dopamine is released by these specialized specialized neurons Hmm. in a specialized part of our brain called the reward pathway. Things that are really reinforcing release a lot more dopamine um, and also release it faster. And that's the fundamental difference between things that are addictive. Like listening to this podcast. Right. right? Like like listening to this podcast is basically releasing (laughs) a lot of dopamine because it's super, (laughs) super reinforcing. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so that's, you know, that's the fundamentals of dopamine. Okay, interesting. And then there, it sounds like in our, in our world, just generalities, for every action, there's an opposite reaction. And so what might, is there something that counteracts this? Or like, are we just high dopamine forever? Like, how does, how does it wear off? Yeah, how does, that, how does it work? Yeah, so it's really uh, fascinating what, uh, how our brains have evolved. Um, but essentially... Um, what we've discovered in the last 75 years or so in neuroscience is that the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain. So those, those are overlapping areas. And pleasure and pain work like opposite sides of a balance. So if you imagine mm-hmm. that in your brain, in your reward pathway part of the brain, there's a board on a center fulcrum, kind of like a teeter-totter in a kid's playground. And that is, uh, uh, that's a way to think about how we process pleasure and pain. So, um, for example, when we experience something pleasurable, it, that balance tips one way. And when we experience something painful, the, the balance tips the other way. But one of the overarching rules governing this balance is that it wants to remain level. It doesn't want to be tipped hmm. very long to the side of pleasure or pain. And our brains will work very hard to restore a level balance or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. But here's the key thing to realize, because it it has such a huge impact on uh, how people become addicted, but also on our experience in the modern world. The way that the brain restores homeostasis after a deviation from neutrality, whether to the side of pleasure Mm -hmm. or pain, is first by tipping an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was. So let me give you an example. If I eat a piece of chocolate, I like chocolate, I get a release of dopamine in my brain's reward pathway, and my balance tilts to the side of pleasure. But no sooner has that happened than my brain will start to downregulate dopamine transmission, not just to baseline levels, but below baseline levels. That's called hmm. neuroadaptation. And you can imagine that as these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But the key is that the gremlins like it on the balance, so they don't hop off as soon as the balance is level. They stay on until it's tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's the come down, the hangover, the after effect, or in my case, that moment of wanting a second piece of chocolate. Mm -hmm. Now, if I wait long enough, the gremlins hop off and balance is restored. But what if I don't wait? What if I continue to eat more and more chocolate over days to weeks to months to years The balance remembers, and I start to get more and more gremlins accumulating on the pain side of my balance. And the the result is something called tolerance, where that initial response to the side of pleasure gets shorter and weaker. 
But here's something really interesting that people don't really realize that after response, the side of pain gets stronger and longer. In other words, I accumulate so many gremlins on the pain side of the balance that they could fill this whole room and they're camped out there. They're not getting off anytime Mm. soon. Even if I don't eat chocolate for a couple of days, they're not going to go away. So Mm. effectively what I've done is I've changed my hedonic or joy set point. I'm now semi-permanently tilted to the side of pain. That means that now I need to eat chocolate or whatever my drug of choice is, not to feel good, but just to level the balance and feel normal. I've narrowed my attention just on chocolate and other things have become less enjoyable. And when I'm not eating chocolate, I'm walking around with a balance tilted to the side of pain, experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use, otherwise known as craving. So is it a stretch or is it wrong to say that pleasure is pain, pain is pleasure? They're just different forms of each other? I would phrase it slightly differently. I would say that 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 you can't have one without the other. Hmm. So on the heels of pleasure is pain and on the heels of pain is often pleasure. And those two things go together. Now, that is a kind of a gross oversimplification It's Mm -hmm. possible to have pleasure and pain simultaneously, for example, when eating spicy foods. Um, And there are other instances of that that I'm sure people could imagine. But the the real lesson here is that with any deviation from baseline levels, whether Mm -hmm. to the side of pleasure or the side of pain, the way that the brain will restore baseline is first to tilt an equal and opposite amount to the other Mm. side so that there's a cost for every pleasure and there's a reward for every pain. Interesting. So, so kind of like you're saying the flip side would be working out or something. It's maybe not fun in the moment, but then, or say running, you get that runner's high as people talk about. Um, I'm wondering, are you, are you familiar with, this is a little tangent, but it's, I'm thinking of it, um, the different types of fun, type one, type two, and type three fun. So, so does this explain those types of fun then? <laughs> yeah. Right. So um, yes. And believe it or not, I had never heard this term until my niece came back from camp last summer and she described <laughs> carrying her, portaging the canoe, you know, from one lake to the other. And I said, gosh, that sounds just awful. She goes, oh, no, it was type two fun. And I said, type two fun, that, what's that? She said, oh, that, that's fun that, that you don't feel in the moment, but you feel it afterwards. But by the way, I don't know what type three fun is. What's type three fun? Well, so type one is it's fun now. It's also fun later. Type, type two is as you described. And type three is it's not fun now and it's not fun later. Oh, interesting. Well, <laughs> yeah. see now, the so problem I, I guess with type just a one. The, the, the problem with type one pain, though, it's fun now and it's fun later. I'm not sure that really exists. Oh, Things that are, interesting. Yeah, right, right. Because <laughs> if you look at, you know, the neuroscience, if we indulge in something that's really, really powerfully pleasurable in the moment, there's almost always a price to pay later. Mm-hmm. That, that certainly makes sense. Um, so we kind of, I think, understand a little bit how the brain works now. And it sounds, as we were mentioning earlier, a bit archaic, but also 
very, very finely tuned and quite, um, uh, I don't know, like, what would you say? It, it's a wonder that it works the way it does. And <laughs> it's, it's like this, it's this ancient thing, but it's also like, seems very high tech and, and, you know, very <laughs> right. finely tuned. And then you plunk this down in the world we live in to today, which is not the world that our brains evolved from. And so right. what, what are like, I can only imagine we're, we have a few compatibility issues. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, so this kind of mechanistic metaphor, again, is an oversimplification. It's a way to understand what's really a very complex mm-hmm. you know, neuroscientific loops that are only now being yeah. worked out. No, I appreciate you speaking to me in metaphors. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, me too. I think metaphors are powerful. But yeah, but it's it's fair to say, like, it seems like Mother Nature's cruel joke. Like, why, why, why make a, you know, why make that the the way that we experience pleasure. Why not make mm. pleasure something that like a hole in a bucket as a different metaphor where we like get a bunch of pleasure and then it slowly drains off, but that's not what it is. We get pleasure and then we pay a price, which is pain. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, it makes total sense. Like we evolved for a world of scarcity and ever present danger, which means mm. that in order to get scarce resources and stay alive, we had to be, constant seekers. How can our brain make, make us constant seekers? Well, by making everything, everything that's pleasurable only transitory, right? And by having that pleasure be followed by pain such that we're then motivated, very motivated to find that pleasure again. And of course, if pleasure is scarce, then we're not going to be in a situation where we're sort of finishing one pleasurable uh, you know, experience and then immediately going to the next, right? We're going to have to find that next scarce resource. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, those gremlins are going to hop off and homeostasis will be restored. So we won't get into that kind of addiction vortex. The problem today is that our primitive wiring is woefully mismatched for our modern ecosystem, where we have almost infinite access to highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors, including drugs that didn't even exist before, very healthy and adaptive behaviors like making human attachments has now even become drugified through things like social media. So we're now living in a world where actually we're, we're all in ways large and small, vulnerable to constantly bombarding our reward pathway with these little hits mm-hmm. of dopamine. And the result is that we're all accumulating these neuroadaptation gremlins on the pain side of the balance and essentially resetting our reward pathways to the side of pain so that we're all more depressed, more anxious, more irritable, um, more craving, right? And yet we think it's because, you know, oh, my life's, I don't have this, right? I don't have that. And the real reason is because we have too much of all of this kind of stuff. Hmm. So I can hear some people saying, okay, Anna, I, I concede you, we have addictions and there's addictive behavior, but I don't know about social media or some of these things, it sounds like you're, you're starting to mention. So maybe walk me through a little bit of like, is being addicted to a powerful drug that we, we would all concede is addictive and a behavior like flipping through my phone. Can you help me make that connection and how, maybe you're not saying they're the same, maybe you are saying they're the same. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, first let's start with what, what is addiction? Addiction is broadly defined as the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. 
Um, in the DSM-5, the criteria are the four Cs, control, compulsion, consequences, and cravings, plus mm. two physiologic criteria, tolerance, needing more over time to get the same effect, or finding that your drug stops working at a given dose, and withdrawal. That is the physiologic experience of not having your drug, um, which is unpleasant, which is that balance mm-hmm. tilted beside a pain. So over, you know, 20 plus years of, of treating addiction and treating mental health disorders, what I can tell you is that the natural history of addiction to drugs and alcohol is exactly the same as the natural history of addiction to behaviors like gambling, like sex and pornography, uh, like video games, like social media. Um, and essentially, this is the natural history. People start out for one of two reasons, to have fun or to solve a problem. If it works for them in either of those categories, mm-hmm. they will typically repeat the behavior. They will then progress to using more frequently until they um, either have consequences or they find that they need more and more of that drug to get the same effect over time. They will invest more and more of their resources in getting that drug and then ultimately get to this point where they're physiologically altered and where even when they want to stop, they're not able to. So, um, you know, I've just seen that so many times. And of course, we know from uh, neuroscientific studies like imaging studies that when people engage in gambling, for example, that same reward pathway that lights up with drugs and alcohol also lights up uh, with these types of reinforcing behaviors. That's also true for video games. It's also true for other online activities that we do. So it's not a far stretch to say that, you know, imaging studies have shown that that's the part of the brain that lights up, the part of the brain that involves reward and pleasure and release of dopamine. And then to look at the phenomenology of the behaviors and see how people really experience addiction to, let's say, video games or pornography or um, gambling just the same way that people um, are addicted to drugs and alcohol. Also importantly, the intervention, in my experience, when you use the same intervention, um, people get better in the same way. So when we use this addiction frame and apply it to process addictions, behavioral addictions, um, people have very similar responses. And, and the, the intervention that I talk about in my book is essentially it starts for most people with abstinence from their drug. Um, they go into withdrawal. It's a painful period. It's a psychologically mm-hmm. painful, but often physically painful for people. Um, as time goes on and their brain starts to heal and those gremlins hop off and homeostasis is restored, people um, get relief from some of that intense craving. They're, they're able to sort of widen their lens and enjoy other things. Um, and then it becomes, you know, the ongoing work of recovery to try to maintain um, maintain that recovery. And, and it just looks identical whether the drug is, you know, cannabis or whether the, the drug is, uh, you know, some kind of online digital product. Hmm. So I don't know, did that help? Yeah, and so I, I think that's very helpful. And, and I'd like to drill down a little more into just social media and get your opinion because because you're practicing as well, so you're not only just studying this, but you're you're also having these um, patient experiences, and so I guess I'm just curious in your in your studies and also experience is social media a form of addictive behavior you're seeing, or is it like a I guess you could say a gateway addictive behavior leading mm-hmm. to other behaviors that are actually more detrimental to someone's life. 
Yeah. So let's analogize again to drugs and alcohol. The vast majority of people who drink alcohol will not develop a severe addiction to alcohol, mm-hmm. but about 10 to 15% will. The same thing with social media. You know, the vast majority of people will be able to use social media in moderation and benefit from all of the wonderful aspects of social media because there are a lot of obvious upsides. Yeah, it gets better um, at these days, but it, it's definitely, yeah, there's right. some wonderful things yeah, to it. Of course, of course. Um, but for the, that subset of individuals who's vulnerable to social media addiction, it can very quickly spiral into something that's incredibly harmful for them. And, you know, it's it's not easy to predict who that's going to be. Um, but for, I have seen, you know, in my practice now, especially recently, especially among among, you know, younger, younger women and girls, um, very um, significant compulsive overuse of social media that appears to be an addiction to social media itself. Social media, though, can also be a trigger for other addictions, right? There's this contagion effect where when we see other people using certain drugs or activities in a certain way online, that gives us the idea that we could do that too. And it also normalizes that behavior. And then again, if we're vulnerable to that behavior and we try it out and we like it, we might get addicted to that behavior. Social media is also a, a way to find traditional drugs, right? We can now, um, you know, order drugs and alcohol online through social media connections mm-hmm. and dark web connections that, you know, that didn't make those drugs as accessible as before. So I think it's all of the above. Social media itself can be a drug for certain vulnerable individuals. Social media can be a gateway to other drugs through the social contagion effect, and social media can make it easier to obtain traditional drugs. So a, a moment ago, I'm just looking at my notes here because you mentioned, um, actually, I can't even read my notes. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> okay. you, you mentioned some of the, uh, the, the reasons we begin to choose these behaviors, <clears throat> yeah. and um it was solving problems or seeking fun. I shouldn't even write my notes because I can't read them. <laughs> so you said solving problems or seeking fun was ways that we could um, begin this journey. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering, where does distraction and boredom fit into there? Is it mm-hmm. under one of those categories or is it kind yeah. of its own thing? Yeah. So the, I think the category of a solving a problem is a very, very big category. Oh, I see. It so the problem is yeah. boredom. In That's that right. Presence. Yes, right. Um, In fact, boredom is probably one of the most common triggers that I'll hear about for why people, um, you know, use drugs and alcohol and other addictive behaviors. So boredom Mm -hmm. is huge, especially in the modern world when we have not just more leisure time on any given day, but also more days. We're living longer. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the interesting trends we're seeing now is um, people in retirement getting addicted for the first time. It used to be if you were going to mm. get addicted, you would sort of declare yourself in your teens and early 20s. Now that's not true. We're seeing more and more people who have been able to consume all kinds of intoxicants in moderation who suddenly, you know, after the age of 65 are developing very serious addictions and and looking for help for that. So, um, and of course, boredom among young people is, is really um, a huge trigger. I guess the question is, why are we seeking to solve boredom? Because there, you can you can learn a lot when there's nothing going on and you're bored and you just your thoughts go internal or external, and, it, and those are times you can really figure out some stuff and especially just learn more about yourself. 
But I mean, I know the urge of just like, oh, I'm bored. I'm, I'm at an appointment. I've got 10 minutes. Just pull the phone out. And I know I'm not accomplishing anything. I'm just passing time. <clears throat> and so yeah. first off, why are we seeking to solve boredom? And then secondly, is there something unique to our culture? Like are there other cultures that perhaps equip us better to deal with things like boredom or just seeking distraction from our life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge that boredom is a state of, at best, discomfort. It's not a pleasant feeling. Hmm. Um, it can bring up deeper existential uh, thoughts, um, like, hmm. you know, why, why am I here? What is my purpose? Because when we're not busy doing something, it forces us to reflect on, well, what should I be doing? You know, how should I pass my time? Or when I am you know, busy, do, do those things really matter? Um, so I think that, that boredom is a really powerful emotion, but an unpleasant one. And so mm-hmm. one that we instinctively um, want to avoid, because again, we are wired over millions of years of evolution to avoid things that are painful and approach things that are pleasurable. It's just uh, so deeply reflexive um, in our in our nature. And then I think um, the other aspect is certainly cultural and also just the modern world where we are constantly being entertained and distracted. I mean, you can't even ride in an elevator, um, you know, without hearing music being pumped out. You can't, you can't ride in a taxi without seeing a, you know, a television screen. I mean, there, it's, yeah. you can't go to the dentist's office without frozen playing, you know, uh, I mean, it's just, it's like, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm just like, it's like people, just the whole world is constructed, is rapidly designed to make sure that everybody's constantly, you know, entertained and distracted. So even if we want to choose, um, you know, to not be distracted, it's harder and harder to do that. And of course, the, the phones make it just so tempting because they are truly entertaining. You know, the device itself is engaging. It has the qualities of an organic um, kinds of a, a living thing that, you know, we put, we invest energy and it gives us these little bleeps and flashes of light. And, you know, that's like a little living thing that's talking to us and it remembers us and says, Hey, you should watch this. And that's like a friend recommending, a, you know, a good movie. And um, so it's, it's really hard to avoid. Yeah. I remember that. What was it? The Gigapet in the nineties? It's like this little thing you had to keep alive. It, it like yeah. go poop in the corner. You had to clean it yeah. up. And if you didn't, yeah. it slowly died or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the phone reminds me just a lot of that, the way that, you know, if you're a parent and, you know, when you're having... That's funny. Born, I never thought about it like that. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, as a parent, you always know where your child is. Like, it, like your child occupies like 90% of your mental space, or at least for me as a, you know, as a, mother, a young mother, uh-huh. I always knew where my child was and I had some kind of... Um, sort of mental umbilical cord to my child. Now we have that with our phones. We like, we always know where our phone is. We know if it's on or if it's off. We're always in this kind of semi-expectant state regarding the phone. Will it be reaching out to us, needing our attention? And gosh, to me, that's just a little scary. Yeah. Yeah, most certainly. No, And I, I know that feeling for sure of like, Oh, I hope like that email shows up today that I was hoping <laughs> that like opens up yeah. that new project or whatever. You're yeah. you're just always at the mercy of this thing. Um, yeah, and it's funny because it doesn't even have to take like a positive form. Because for, for me, a lot of times it's like, oh, I need to check my email to put out fires. 
You know, I may mm. need to stay on top of the like all of the problems that are going to arise and make sure I'm right there, you know, to like quench, you know, the match, you know, so that it doesn't yeah. turn into a conflagration. But of course, you know, that's like a, like, a, that's also, unless I'm on call, you know, which I'm not usually on call, it's sort of a distorted uh, perception. Yeah. Yeah. I'm certainly slowly getting better at just like, oh, if I turn my phone on do not disturb, flip it upside down, I can get a whole lot more done. <laughs> yeah. And you know, what's really amazing if you just like turn it all the way off, it's amazing yeah, what that does. Because when it's all the way off, not only can you not send, but you can't really receive. And somehow yeah. knowing that you can't receive, I think helps quiet those constant sort of preoccupations with, well, you know, what's happening in my phone. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting when you mentioned boredom a moment ago, it, it sounds an awful lot like how you were phrasing working out and these types of things that are not necessarily fun in the moment, but then we're rewarded later with these uh, yeah. pleasure receptors. Mm-hmm. Because when you have a moment that is, uh, what would you phrase it as? Um, uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. You know, painful. Uh, yeah. Makes you uneasy, restless. Yeah. But yet it opens up to the ability to think about like, questions that are often scary of like, does life have meaning? What's my right. purpose? Right. Um, because we're often trying to figure out what's my passion, right. what's the thing I want to do, hmm. but we're not questioning whether it has meaning. Right. Um, we, we might just assume it does, but we don't mm-hmm. try to figure out what's the foundation for that meaning. Because if we, you know, if we just came from evolutionary biology, well, that tells us there's no meaning but we feel like there is. And so there's a, uh, anyways, it, it's, it certainly feels like one of those working out things where like it, there, there could be value of just sitting in that boredom for a moment and letting, yeah. letting some of those scary thoughts show up. Yeah. I think the other, you know, we, we, we all want to have a sense of meaning in life and purpose, mm-hmm. but what can happen with the constant state of reactivity uh, through our digital devices is that we don't, give ourselves enough time to reflect on what's meaningful for us. We Mm -hmm. let that be defined by so many other people. And I think we can really go astray when we do that in this constant fear of missing out. You know, people talk about FOMO as if like the internet invented FOMO. There was FOMO before the internet. I mean, I remember growing up long before these devices, you know, were sort of, you know, everybody had them and having a lot of feelings like, you know, am I missing out? What are those people doing over there? What should I be doing? Why don't I know what I should be doing? You know, yeah. uh, everybody else seems to have it together. I mean, these are just like, that's the human condition, right? But what's happened with the internet is that those are even more exaggerated because we're seeing these millions of curated images, which convey the very misleading unrealistic message that everybody else has it figured out and has these amazing lives. And we're just kind of a bunch of, you know, schlumps. And I can tell you, no matter how successful you are, you can go on the internet and feel bad about yourself, like in, in three oh, seconds. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> take long. Um, right. So there's something about the medium itself, which, which takes the, what is, I think, you know, kind of a universal angst about meaning and purpose and what should I be doing? And then just like turns it, turns the volume up to 11. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, 
I just have this kind of general theory, and I'm very happy to be wrong with this, that technology in its most broad strokes is an accelerant on, it can be an accelerant on human behavior and human nature. And so whatever's inside of us, it can just add a little more fuel to that fire in a good way or a bad way. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I really like that. That's a nice idea. That's cool. I think COVID's also done that. Like people talk about, you know, what's happened yeah. during COVID. I think COVID has just accelerated trends that were already mm-hmm. happening and just, you know, fast tracked them. Yeah. On the, on the political as well. Yeah. So, you know, I'd, I'd like to take it more that political mm-hmm. cultural direction in a moment. But the, the last thing that really struck me as we were talking about this is that it sounds like in our uncomfortable moments, our desires for the, our fixes of dopamine, all these things that we've been discussing, it sounds like we're shaping the environment around us to, um, to give us that. And yet that surrounding eventually shapes us. So it's like this very reflective thing of we are shaping our surroundings, our surroundings in turn shape us. This yes. Is- Yes, that's really, and, and you know, I, I, I probably heard this term, the Anthropocene. I'm sure you've heard that. Have you heard mm. that? Mm-hmm. Do you know that that idea that this yeah. is the this just this idea that for the first time in human history, we are we've entered an age when human behavior has shaped the environment that we live in in significant ways. The 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 classic example is global warming, but I think this is another example of the Anthropocene, the ways in which you know, these advancements in technology and the world that we've created, we made it, but now it, it is on some level kind of, we've, we've built a us. cage. Yeah. We <laughs> built a cage essentially, you know, uh, which is so paradoxical. Yeah. Yeah. Because we, especially in Western culture, we crave freedom the way we've defined it, which I would classify as a lack of all restrictions Whereas I think traditionally freedom is defined as giving your finding the right restrictions, right? Because as an example, like a fish, it needs the restriction of water to fully flourish right. as mm-hmm. the fish it is. Yes. We need certain restrictions. Like if you're going to become a psychiatrist, you're going to have to restrict yourself a ton. To find, (laughs) to to go through all those years of work and study to become the psychiatrist, to have that freedom that you you want. But we don't really think about freedom that way. And so, no, that's right. But I I agree with you 100%. So, this idea of sort of no restrictions, infinite plasticity, you know, I can be whoever I choose to be. I don't think that that's really freedom. And I don't think that's getting us where we want to go. You're absolutely right. I think we need to think about you know, right and wrong. Um, we need to incorporate, you know, the moral law, which I think is a natural law. And then, um, you know, and we might not agree on what that is, but we still need to think about it and then create those guardrails to allow us to flourish in our lives. I do, I do believe that's true. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's look at the uh, social and political aspects of um, everything we've been talking about because it sound, I mean, I think this is a great segue because we are kind of at the point in our conversation where we're saying we're shaping our environment, but then that environment's coming back and shaping us. But so let's dive into how do you see any connections between the, 
hyper political that we've become and the like I'm stumbling over myself, but I'm just trying to say of like the culture wars that we're experiencing right now, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how might they be related to dopamine and all this pleasure we're seeking? Yeah. So I think these culture culture wars really are related to dopamine in the sense that we've now like evolved the attention span of a gnat. And we're used to, you know, we're used to I know getting, what that's like. Yeah, right. And, and you know, now we're used to, like, having things instantly, right? I mean, with the mm-hmm. press of a button, we can get everything that we want. So that also comes to when we think about, you know, society and political problems and just the huge, all of the huge problems that present themselves today. People are not comfortable sitting with nuance and ambiguity. They want the answer immediately. They want the answer to be something that's sensational and appealing, emotional, um, because people are just now used to, um, you know, having this dopamine release um, constantly. And if they don't have it, they, they feel, you know, they're, they're, in, they're in distress. And I think this has really changed the political discourse because, again, what it means is that you know, anybody can get online and like sign an online petition or post something on Instagram, but to actually do the hard work of thinking through these complex problems and coming up with the complicated policy responses that will be required to really fix the problems, nobody wants to do that. Everybody just wants to post on Instagram. Um, So that's really concerning. The other thing too is that, you know, we're also wired to connect with other humans the way that our brains get us to do that is to, in fact, release dopamine when we make those human connections. How are those human connections made? Well, when people like us, when they compliment us, when they regard us highly, but also when they experience the same emotion that we're experiencing at the same time. And that can contribute to this kind of like herd mentality, which can be mm-hmm. very protective for you know the, the group or the tribe but which is really pernicious on social media when people get caught up in this kind of feeding frenzy around a particular um, statement or, or image or idea. And so it's, it's like people are caught up in that, you know, without being able to press kind of the pause button and say, well, wait a minute, what are we really talking about here? So it sounds like you're saying, I'm just going to say it back to you to help process what I'm hearing. It sounds like you're saying, we've designed or we live in a world where we need instant gratification. And so therefore my experience on the political spectrum, my solutions I'm going to find or solutions I'm going to be more attracted to are the hyper simple. And so a very quick like meme is going to be something that is going to attract me much more as an actual solution, as opposed to the complex, the nuance and the challenging to kind of sort through like the gray is that is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I mean I think I think most people would agree that the the truest path is usually somewhere in the middle. Yeah. But that that's not something that releases a whole lot of dopamine. You know what releases dopamine is like <laughs> we're going to solve, you know, this problem by doing these three things, you know, and and then you add to that a whole bunch of other people who are excited about that. And then you've got the social media, you know, human connection piece of it, plus the appeal of the super simple idea. And then you've got those rolling through a 24-7, you know, media cycle. 
I mean, people really are addicted to that. You know, I mean, I've had people out like, I'm addicted to the news. I'm seriously addicted to the news. I can't not watch the news. And yet I don't want to watch the news. So, yeah. I mean, I do think that that's, that's a big part of it. Yeah. And the thing that is curious to me is it seems like we're more attracted to burning than building right yes. now when mm-hmm. it comes to institutions and, and, or just political ideas. And I'm still trying to figure out where that's coming from. It, it seems like a very populist kind of thing, but I, I don't know. Again, I think, you know, what is what does it take to build something? It takes first stopping, pressing the pause button, you know, eliminating all distractions so you can think deeply about how to build it, mm-hmm. taking the time to actually build it, probably making mistakes along the way you know, getting the input of other people who have experience building that thing, collaborating with them, dealing with the frustration of, you know, human fallibility and, and working together. I mean, those are, that's a very nuanced, slow process to, to really build something. You know, we don't build things by like, you know, we don't build things through emojis, right? That's not, that, that, that's not how we do it. But wrecking something, you can wreck something in a heartbeat. Yeah. And then there's yeah. a big bonfire, and that's cool, you know, and exciting. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So what what are some ways forward from our position here? Uh, like, how – because, you know, it sounds a bit hopeless. It can easily sound hopeless, I'll say that. But I think I think there's great hope out there. And yeah. so I'm just wondering, you know, how do you see us navigating this forward on, let's say, a realistic level? And then also what would be like the hope, whether it's realistic or not? Like what gives yeah. you hope today? Yeah, I mean, I agree. We, we, we need to have hope and we, we can have hope. I mean, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation if we weren't hopeful that we could yeah. figure this out. I really believe that it starts with us, that every day we wake up and we make individual choices about our lives. And those choices have an enormous cumulative impact, not only on our lives, but on the lives of the people around us. And so if we're all making better personal choices, that can have a ripple effect that can really change the world. This morning, as I was heading to my dental appointment, I saw a a young mother walking along with her you know, five, six-year-old kids, um, and she was he- nose in her phone, and her kids were talking to her. They were they were talking to her, but she really wasn't listening. She was, you know, looking at her phone, and I just thought, you know, that's the beginning of the end right there, right? Raising a generation of kids who talk to caretakers who are completely distracted and um, not attentive to the unfolding of their experience. So what can we do? You know, we can have a conscience about these choices and be really thoughtful about them. And, and cause I think we, we all intrinsically kind of know right and wrong. I really do believe that. And we can choose the right thing and that will have a big, big impact. So my book is all about, you know, finding that thing that we are, addicted to and basically abstaining from it for 30 days, not a lifetime, but 30 days, which is long enough for neuroadaptation uh, to reset itself and for baseline dopamine firing to be reestablished so that we can 
expand our lens and actually wake up to our own lives. And then it's about if we choose to go back to using that substance or behavior to reintegrating it in a way that's, um, you know, that's healthy and productive and not harmful and toxic. And I talk a lot about self-binding strategies. You had talked about freedom. I absolutely believe we need to bind ourselves to be free, especially in the mm. world we live in today. And self-binding just talks about setting up guardrails between ourselves and, and our drug of choice so that we can um, constrain and moderate our use and not you know, fall into this compulsive uh, overconsumption that plagues all of us you know, in some form or another. So these kinds of small choices, I think, make a really powerful difference. I think parents in particular have a huge responsibility um, to model for their children the kind of behavior that they want to see in the world. Um, it really does start with us. Um, and then, you know, I think it, it spirals out to other entities. I think schools um, have a role to play here with our relationship with uh, these digital devices and making sure that... We have tech-free spaces in schools and that we, you know, we don't make every single assignment involve a screen and don't make people dependent on, uh, you know, Google to tell them the answer. You know what I mean? Make mm -hmm. sure that there's also other types of learning and room for other types of learners. And then I do think the corporations and the government, they have a responsibility too. But if we sit around and wait for them to fix the problem for us, trust me, we're not going to make any progress. It has to really be a groundswell where we say, wow, you know, how do we really want to live, you know, in this really incredible world that we've created, but that we're largely uh, taking for granted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like all that. And I especially like what you're mentioning about looking more into who I am and what I'm doing. Because we're, of course, I'm super guilty of this too. We're very interested in changing the other person right now. Yeah, uh, you know we we're very clear on who's messing up this nation and what they need right. to do to change that. Mm -hmm. But I think if we just you know toned that down because we we can't change anybody but ourselves. That's I mean, right. That's I think right. we're fooling ourselves if we if we believe otherwise. Yeah. So just like looking internal a little more of like okay, what are some what are some things that I can do? Right. Maybe you're perfect. I don't know. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! And that's step number one: really realizing how imperfect we all are. Yeah, exactly. And so just, yeah, I, I like that. Like seeing what's something that we do that, and maybe it's, I don't know, it's, are, are we all, do we all have a little something that we could do less of? Sure. I, I mean, addiction I is so. a heavy word to say we all have an addiction, yeah. but like. It, we all have something that some kind of compulsive overconsumption problem, something that we, once we start, we have difficulty stopping uh, mm. that we wished we used less of or differently in the course of our day. Uh, we all have something like that now. It's hard to imagine. I mean, there may be a very small percentage of people living in, you know, maybe rarefied environments who aren't struggling with that. But the average modern person is really struggling with that. And in my book, I talk about my own compulsive um, romance reading addiction that evolved, you know, without my being fully aware of it and progressed over time to Frank erotica and, you know, my kind of then suddenly waking up and going, wow, I, I think I've got a problem here, huh, but you know, it, it took me a while to figure it out. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm going to take away from this conversation. I'm going to look, I'm going to find mine and I'm going to, I mean, 
I'm sure it sounds easy now. Oh yeah, in 30 days I'll just not do that. But <laughs> a couple hours after this, you know, I'll spend some time yeah. thinking. I'll be like, ah, six days is probably good. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and it's really important. I do think it's important to get to 30 days because just in my experience, on average, that's how long it takes to reset these reward pathways. And if you if you stop earlier than that, you're only getting the downside. You only experience the withdrawal. Mm. You're not getting to that place where you kind of come out. And, and experience, you know, mm. the kind of the freedom of, of that maladaptive attachment. Okay. Well, if folks want to, I mean, you've mentioned your book, if folks, will, and, and I know you write some as well, articles and stuff that are available online. If folks want to find more of your work, where, where can they do that? Well, um, so for the book, dopamination.com is a website. It's also under onalemke.com and it has lots of different references and lists of, you know, things I've done. If people are interested, go to that. Okay. Fabulous. We'll, we'll send them that way. Sounds great. Good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. It's been super fun. Oh, good. Yeah. It, it wasn't what I expected, but it was really nice. I don't know <laughs> okay. quite what I expected, but uh, something different, I think. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. Cause you don't want to do the yeah. same thing all the time. That's right. Exactly right. Nice to meet you. Thanks so much. Thank you for watching to the very end. If you like our content, make sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review. It is the best way to help us reach the most people possible, and that way we can keep producing content every week. Make sure to drop a comment below of who you'd like us to interview next, and we look forward to seeing you next week.